session with Dr. Farid Hulak. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program. The shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get to the book of the week from this past week, the book for this week is Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. Um, Malcolm Gladwell has written many bestsellers, including Blink, Tipping Point, Outliers. Um, it's interesting when you read up on some people's thinking about his writing, sometimes it becomes overly simplistic and he's a very good writer. You can, I actually read 50 pages of this book this morning quite quickly and it's a page turner. He makes it very entertaining. But there are some critics who say that he oversimplifies things or sometimes um, bends uh, things to make it fit a certain narrative. Now, I'm uh, interested to read this book and share my thoughts. But I also wanted to mention that because at times when I want to read books for the books of the week, um, I know that when people see me post something or announce that this is the book of the week, it in some way seems like an endorsement of the book. And oftentimes I haven't read the book and maybe I don't know the author very well. Uh, and that can also limit me in some way because I feel that I have to be aware of who I might appear to be promoting, even though that's not always the case. I think it's a good idea to read ideas and books from people you also disagree with because that can help challenge you and make sure that you're more well-rounded in how you view things. Um, so that's something that does come up from time to time when people suggest certain books or authors to me. I notice that I think about what it will look like I'm promoting, even though sometimes it's just about reading different things. Not to say that Malcolm Gladwell is that controversial of a figure, but um, there is some criticism about some of the ways that he uh, writes about things. But as far as his ability to write and tell stories, it really is uh, quite easy to get through his books because of that. He's a very good and brilliant writer. Um, so I have about 300 pages left to see what else he has to say in this book, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. Uh, the book of the week that uh, from last week that I'll talk about tonight is To Have or To Be by Eric Fromm. Um, and in some ways there's some parallels to what I was just talking about. But this book, in contrast, was about half the length in pages of uh, uh, the Malcolm Gladwell book, but very dense and uh, so much intricacies in the writing of Eric Fromm that oftentimes I'd have to read over certain paragraphs again and again um, and go back and look at things. But he is one of my favorite thinkers in some ways I can say of all time, but I really resonate with his way of thinking about things. And at times it's amazing how the things he talked about 
sometimes 40, 50, 60 years ago, are so true still today in society. And reading this book, I had a similar experience. Um, and I'm very happy to have read this book, To Have or To Be by Eric Fromm. And To Have or To Be, that's really obviously what the whole book is about, is these different modes of being, different modes of uh, ways of living or of character defaults or ways that we can act. So to have means that I'm focused on property, on possession, on aggression, on what I can have. I'm focused and consumed by that. And in being, it's actually more about living actively, being alive, even sometimes giving rather than in the sense of having as far as property goes, but that my aliveness comes from actually being active rather than in trying to have and hold on to things. And as he mentions throughout the book, and also I got a few comments on social media, which were totally spot on that. How can we be in this being mode, try to be more of a human being when it seems that we live in a society that's so obsessed and focused with having, and it's so obsessed and focused with having that we take it as common sense that that's what life is about. So if you tell someone, Oh, you can make a lot of money. They think that's of course, always good. And the thing that you would be motivating your actions, if you can make more money, of course you do that. If you can um, work less, you should do that. If you can have more things, you should do that. Even sometimes I see this echoed um, from some parents. If they say, you know, my teenager says he's depressed, but I'm like, what do you have to be depressed about? We have everything. And by have everything, they mean all the possessions, not realizing that that's not what human beings want or need or are striving for. Um, and he talks about really a lot of very interesting issues related to this topic of what it means to have and to be these two different modes of living um, and how some of it comes from the tendency we have in today's culture, which goes back a while now, but of thinking that if we have a lot of pleasure, we're going to be happy or live a good life so that the whole point of life is to try to have the maximum amount of pleasure. And this is even what a lot of people think when they think of a happy life. You say, imagine yourself happy and they might think, oh, I'm jet skiing in Hawaii and having this great pleasurable experience. And that can be a very enjoyable experience, absolutely, but it's not something that's going to make you feel good long term. And this is unfortunately what most people experience because we have the recipe all wrong and because we think that the aim um, of life is to be just happy in the moment and have the maximum pleasure what happens is either people don't reach that they are not quote-unquote successful by today's standards and so they feel like a failure a loser and miserable because of that or they get it they have all the material things that they thought would make them happy, but they're not happy or don't feel, feel that they're fulfilled or leaving a good life. And they think, well, there's something wrong with me if I'm not happy, even though I have everything. But the problem is in that when we focus on having, no matter what you have, you're not going to be happy long-term in the sense of contentment and fulfillment, not just happiness as far as pleasure in the moment. And so it's the way of being that's the problem or the way of the mode of living our lives that is what we should be focusing on. And so he talks about what these two different modes look like in different aspects of life. Even uh, one of the interesting ones for me was about reading because uh, reading this book and reading a book a week, um, a lot of times when we think about reading and even I've 
recognize this in myself. It's this feeling that, well, I have this book now. I've read this one. I have that knowledge as in it's in my possession. When really what knowledge should be about is to know more deeply. And that was an interesting point he made when it comes to education, that we tend to think of knowledge as if I know more, that's good. But in a way, we should want to know more deeply. And I thought that distinction was important. So in the having mode, it's about have more knowledge, while in the being mode, it's about knowing more deeply. That I'm actually, in a way, you're interacting with the knowledge or the information. And just like in schooling and education, we can focus on, rather than just trying to fill kids up with information, which is very clearly from the having mode that we have to, we have some knowledge and information and we have to stuff it into their heads and that's education. But really what education should be about or learning is about is to interact with whatever it is you're learning. Be not passive, but active in that experience. And so even in reading, he was saying it should be like a conversation you're having with the author. You're not just passively taking in the information, you're thinking about it and Room, uh, ruminating in a way about it or expressing things, questioning some things the author is saying or in your mind and wondering where they're coming from. But it should be more of an active process rather than a passive one. And so uh, it was something for me to think about in reading the books I read. Sometimes I want to make sure I get it done within the week that maybe I turn into more just trying to get it done and taking in the information. And so interestingly, I tried to keep that mindset very much alive in reading his book which meant that at times I tried to disagree with him or see how I might have a different perspective on things. So that was interesting, uh, what he mentioned on reading, but also related to that in, in similar vein, he talks about education and learning and how there's a difference between the being and the having mode. Also very interesting is looking at that distinction when it comes to love. And even the way people think about love is I have someone or I have someone's love. or We become very possessive of the person. And this to us is what love is about, is to now have them. But this is the problem, because really love is more about the act of loving. And of course, one of his most famous books, and probably my favorite book, is The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm, which is about how we don't look at love as just something you find the right object, and you love them, and you have them now. Um, but you actually are constantly acting and actively in love. So even he prefers, rather than saying falling in love, which makes it passive, he prefers stand, standing or walking in love, meaning that you are choosing to be in love with someone and choosing to actively love them. And even how when we get married, we think, okay, well, now I have them to have and to hold. And so that changes a lot of times the way people look at their partner, that I don't have to try anymore because a lot of people, when you realize it, they're not wanting to find someone to love and to create a good relationship. They're looking for a possession. This comes again from this mindset of having, okay, I have a good job or I have money that can let me have things. And now I have to have a partner, meaning now I get to own this person. And of course, throughout history, men really quite literally were owning their partners, but even still, I'm going to have my partner and then have kids. It's all about really in this have mindset rather than I'm going to find someone to share love with, to express my love and feel alive in loving them and feel that love back from them. But generally people don't have this mindset. It's much more about just having. 
And so when we really love someone, we don't think of them as our possession. We actually think of them as someone we get to love and be loving with. And I think that distinction is quite interesting. So the book gets into various ways that loving, uh, sorry, having can get us in trouble, this having mindset. And, and again and again, it comes up that we live in a society that's so fixated on having that it can be so hard to change this that it really does take a lot. Most people don't even recognize how obsessed and focused they are on just having rather than trying to be a good person. It is not he who has much, or he, but it is he who is much, who lives a good life, who lives in a good way rather than just trying to have things. Um, and throughout the book, he also mentions things that can change to help make this more likely. Um, he definitely comes off and he expresses things from a socialist um, mindset. And so he does say things like we need to reduce the gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, a gap between the rich and the poor nations must be closed. So he says it as far as nations go, but also as far as people within a society go. And we see that this is a huge problem. And we know that the gap between the rich and the poor um, tends to lead to other bad consequences as well. He also mentions having uh, a universal or a guaranteed yearly income, something that has been experimented on even here in the United States in a few cities. But I think presidential candidate Andrew Yang is also proposing this idea, but he's saying that everyone, uh, Eric Fromm says, should have uh, enough for food and somewhere to live. That should be for everyone. And it shouldn't be that only some people have that or that we shouldn't be guaranteed that. And that he says that people actually don't want to do this because they want to keep power over people, but we think it's for other reasons. And also he says women must be liberated from patriarchal uh, domination. And so this was written in 1976, and he talks a bit about the women's movement. But of course, we've made more progress since then, while knowing that we still have much more progress to make that the more women are empowered and given, given equal rights around the world, the better this is for all of society. And he has some other um, advice or guidelines or things he think might bring about more a society of being. Um, and some of it might seem far-fetched or, I don't know, to me seemed hard to implement, like having a Supreme Cultural Council. Uh, but these are people that would be charged with informing the public and also helping us make decisions. But because as he says, if we have a democracy, but people are not informed, this is obviously a big problem. And in today's society, what's even worse is that we have a harder time being informed because there isn't really one set of information. You have uh, many different ways of looking at the same uh, situation or facts and even different facts that makes it hard for us to have a cohesive conversation or discourse with one another. But coming back to the overall premise of the book, to have or to be, it's recognizing how much of our focus in life is on having things, possessions, even when it comes to love, even when it comes to power, positions, that this all comes from this mindset of having, that I have to have these things. Even hoarding, in a way, can come from this. Just if I have more, somehow I am more. And that's that mindset. Or even he you know, talks about, we can say someone is worth a million dollars or a billion dollars, and that's interesting. And um, sometimes I'll say that we shouldn't measure someone's, uh, we can't have our self-worth be measured by our net worth, 
but a lot of times that's how we measure ourselves and others, that this is how good, successful they are, because this is what they have. It's an extension of themselves, but realizing that this is not the true way of being, because even when you have, and if you're happy because of what you have, that can always be taken away. And so you don't have security or stability or a sense of calm when everything is based on what you have. But if it's based on what you are, what you are being, then you can feel good. No one can take away how you are being or who you are being. That is completely up to you. Also, it's an important last note I'll make is about being active. And in today's day and age, and I'm sure back then when he wrote this book too, you see a lot of people thinking, he mentions this um, confusion about the words active and passive. He says they're among the most misunderstood words because a lot of people think, well, as long as they're busy all day, and he talks about busyness, that means I'm being active and somehow productive. I did this and I did this, and then I was on my phone and I did these things and I wrote these emails. And we think that means productivity or being active but he says that you can be active even if you're just laying down if your faculties are being used this is why actually meditation which might look like you're doing nothing can actually be a very active and productive activity because of what you're doing and tapping into your human mindset and potential better than if you are just mindlessly doing some other type of work so just being busy doesn't mean you're being productive. But if for many people, this is how we approach things. Today was a productive day because I was busy in these ways. And if you're relaxing, that means necessarily you're wasting time. But that's not necessarily the case. It depends on your own mindset and how you are doing those things. Or you can have a conversation with someone where you're very actively engaged, whereas you can be passively just listening or not listening and zoning out and still in your mind think, well, I had a conversation with that person, but it's not really just about the action. It's about the underlying intention and the way it's carried out that makes a difference. So I thought that distinction is very important for people's mindset now where we sometimes are so busy and on the go because we think it's good to be busy, not realizing that oftentimes our busy activities are actually not really active. It's just a way of fooling ourselves into thinking we're doing something good. But when we come from the being mode, we do everything much more mindfully, and he talks about that as well, that the being mode only exists in the moment. So to really practice the being mode, you must be mindful and do everything in the moment that you are doing it um, with your full presence. And that makes you much more aware of what's going on, much more active and involved rather than being passively busy. And I thought that was a big distinction, especially in today's day and age. But again, this uh, was another great book by one of my favorite writers of all time, Eric Fromm, To Have or To Be. Highly recommend this book and really anything else he has written um, because I think he's a great thinker and very, very enlightening to read his work. And again, the book of the week for this week, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know by Malcolm Gladwell. All right, reached our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I wanted to change gears to talk a bit about uh, dating, but one specific aspect that comes up in dating and that is the early stages of telling the truth or being honest about who you are. And even this always was an issue, but even more with online dating where people are meeting someone they don't really know or have any background on, this is becoming more common where people are lying about how they look, 
sometimes in their pictures, but even more concretely with things like their age or occupation and those kinds of things. Um, unfortunately, it's one of those things that's almost becoming so common, it's accepted or expected from people that they're going to lie about their age or their occupation or different things. And I think this is very unfortunate. Um, it does relate to some of what Eric Fromm at times, he talks about in this book, but even more in The Art of Loving, about people becoming commodities when it comes to everything, work, but especially even in relationships where you're trying to get a good bargain, where you are um, looking at yourself and how much value you have and then trying to get someone of greater or more uh, equal or greater value to be your partner. And so we're like these commodities on the dating market. And even as you hear it said that way about a dating marketplace. And so we're trying to find the best deal. And so we want to present ourselves as the best, best product going forward. Um, and so very often people will lie about things. And so of course, on a first date, we know that you're not going to talk about your worst qualities or show your worst qualities, hopefully, or, and really you shouldn't be divulging your worst secrets or history of trauma and things that of that sort can come later on. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to represent ourselves as something that we're not. So we know that most people are going to present a slightly shinier version of themselves. It's hard not to do that in the very beginning. But what we want to make sure is even if we're being, let's say, a best version of ourselves or a little bit more uh, polished than we might be later on, that we're not outright lying about who we are. But so often this does happen. So, for example, people will lie about their age. So depending on their situation, maybe they'll say they're younger than they are, they're older than they are, um, depending on what they're trying to accomplish. And then later on, this comes to light uh, at some point, if things do become more serious or they try to get to know each other a little better, this becomes apparent and then they have to face that uncomfortable conversation about, okay, well, there's something I haven't told you or I've lied to you about something. And so they have that conversation. So let's say that they told the person they are um, 32 when actually they're 39 or something. And so now it's this conversation about that. Now, what really happens most of the time is the person who had been lying usually thinks it's more about the content of their lie. So yeah, I told you I was 32, but actually I'm 39. Is that going to be an issue for you? that I'm actually 39 years old, I'm not 32. Now, the content of the lie might be big enough, but when the person is hearing this, even though the person who's now sharing their real age might think it's about that content of the lie, usually what they're most focused on and what's affecting them even more is the fact that they did lie. Not the content of the lie, but the fact that you either hid or lied so directly or explicitly about something, which now affects their ability to trust you overall or trust you about other things or makes them now question, well, what else did you lie to me about if you're uh, not telling me the truth about something this basic and have been hiding it from me for so long? So that's what we have to be aware of. It's not just the content of the lie. A lot of times people think, oh, now they'll know this or that or they'll know that I don't have this job or that wasn't my car or whatever the thing is you were lying about, try to make yourself look better or like a better prospect in general or for that individual. Um, but it's more about the issue of trust. And so this is why I always 
advise couples or just people in general because you haven't formed let's say a relationship yet but when it comes to dating to be honest and upfront from the beginning and i know it sounds like cliche advice no one's going to tell you to lie from the beginning but it's something to be reminded of again because it's something that many people will recommend to you as long as or as far as friends go they might say you know what you can say this or you can say that or it's not a big deal or he'll never find out or she'll she'll never find out or once they do you'll be so close and won't matter anymore but the bigger impact isn't on the information or the content it's more about that process of lying and that effect that's going to happen i've worked with couples that are dealing with issues of trust that come up way later in the relationship because one of the partners found out that something that their partner said early on in the dating process was a lie that they said they uh, had broken up with their boyfriend or their girlfriend but they were still talking with them when they first met and still even seeing them or um, that they said they were going to a cousin's birthday party but really they were going on a weekend trip with someone else they were dating and now they find out whatever the lie might have been or the hiding uh, now it leads to issues of trust and so you want to be honest and you can also especially at the beginning withhold information even sometimes explicitly let's say you're on a date and someone asks you about something if you don't want to answer rather than lying you can say you know i'm not comfortable talking about that yet or getting there um it's possible in the future we will talk about that but right now i don't feel comfortable talking about that and most people won't say that but i'd rather they would than to actually lie about it and say well i didn't know what to say so i lied you can not answer. And sometimes people even ask questions that are too early or too much to ask on, let's say, a first or second date. And you actually should respect your own boundaries and say, you know, I don't want to talk about that yet. And I don't feel comfortable talking about that. That's much better than lying about what the situation is, even if you think the person um, won't like that lie. And we have to really ask ourselves, so why are we lying in those situations? Uh, as is usually the case, is that we're afraid to tell the truth. And in this case, usually it's not afraid as in we're going to get punished, but we're afraid that it's going to end things with that person or it makes us less attractive or unattractive or undateable to them. So we are trying to change the truth to make it work. Okay, they won't date me if I was uh, this age, but maybe if I was this age, they would, not realizing that at some point the truth will have to come out or hopefully you know that you'll have to be honest with them at some point and let them know and then now they'll have to either date you but it's very sad that if we think about it it's this mindset that if i trick them into getting close to me then we'll be too close where they won't be able to say goodbye or they'll be in too deep in a way i'm tricking them into being with me which comes from this mindset that a lot of people have or a lot of us have in general when it comes to lots of things that i'm not good enough myself i have to wear a mask or lie or obscure the facts to get what i want to be good enough so we go on a job interview we have to lie about who we are and our credentials and our resume to make ourselves good enough so similarly we're on a date and we try to lie and hide things or augment certain things about ourselves or minimize certain things whatever the case might be to get someone to like me because the underlying feeling is i'm not enough as I am they're not going to want to be with me and we can hopefully recognize the fault in this type of thinking that if you're going to be with someone who 
you have to trick into liking you. The problem isn't them liking you or not. The problem is you liking yourself or you feeling like you are good enough. And many people, when they go on dates, similar to many people when they go on a job interview, rather than recognizing that it's a two-way street, now when it comes to a job interview, there is a slight power differential in that they can hire you, but of course you can always reject the offer as well or not be happy to work there. But when you're going on a date especially, it should be very equal that I'm going to see if we're a good match, not I have to try to get them to like me or they should have to try to get me to like them, but they were trying to see if we're a good match for one another. It's not about trying to prove that we're good enough or make sure that they like us or not. But many people, they approach dating with the mindset of how do I get them to like me? Even there's uh, lots of articles written to men and to women, how to get the guy to like you, how to uh, pick up a girl at a bar or whatever the thing. And there was lots of books and shows and movies, especially about teaching men how to pick up women. Um, that was all in this mindset of how do you trick someone in a way, or how do you get them to like you more or less, not really um, be a good person for them or be the right person. Now, there are ways that we can communicate that might make us overall less um, likable, and we can learn some things about social skills and different aspects of human behavior that are important. So I'm not saying there's nothing to be learned and everyone should just be whatever they're being and not try to uh, improve in those ways. But trying to be something you're not is unfortunately a big piece of the advice that you get in the dating world. Play games. Don't call when you want to call. Don't say what you want to say. You know, create the chase or you have to hunt or you have to pursue or you have to do these various things. And people do all sorts of things like that. But unfortunately, the biggest part of the whole equation is don't be yourself. Don't be who you want to be. Act like something else. And I think this is very unfortunate. It starts with the relationships forming with a poor foundation because it's created on this uh, false uh, type of being from both individuals. So I'm very against games. If you like someone, I think it's okay to let them know. If you're interested, you can tell them. Or if you want to see them again, let them know. You don't have to pretend like you're not interested or pretend like you're too busy to see them. Um, but going back to what I was saying before, when you talk to a lot of people about dating, all they're thinking is, well, did she like me? Do you think she was into me? Do you, do you think he liked me? Do you think he thinks he'd want to see me again? And even sometimes after a few dates, they're still in that mindset. And if you ask them what they like about that person, they sometimes can't even tell you. But they're so starved for someone or they think they should be so desperate to have someone like them that they're just preoccupied and focused on getting the person to like them. And that goes back even to some of what the, the book to have or to be, this idea of having someone, to possess someone. I got to get them. And unfortunately, even a lot of people, especially men from the side of getting and having, they'll be very charming and kind at the beginning because they think the whole part of dating is to trick the woman to be with them or to get them. And then once they quote unquote have them, then, well, why should I be nice to them? Why should I buy them gifts or be romantic? Now I have them, which shows us that those romantic gestures were not an expression of love. They were actually a bargaining pitch. Right? I'm trying to bargain to get you, not I'm actually trying to show you I love you. Because if it's from love and care, then I want to keep loving you and caring for you and expressing that. But if it's about getting you, well, once I've paid the price, I'd be stupid to keep paying the price. Right? If I've 
going to buy a car and you've already paid it off, you're not going to keep making payments. And that's how some people look at their relationships is once I've gotten you, why should I give any more? Which tells us that they don't have any pleasure or joy or enjoyment in giving that love, which means it's not actually about love. It's about having. So um, in a way, it comes back to the book that I was talking about earlier today, that we were just looking at the person as a possession and we want to give the least we can in this bargain and this commodity to get them. And once we have them, well, that's it. But genuine love is about, I want to love you, not because it's going to make you stay, but actually because I want to love you. I want to give you that love. But when it comes to dating, be aware of what you do from day one, because that can help affect or create the type of relationship you have with someone. Together, you create a culture for your relationship. And if the foundation of it is based on lying or dishonesty or being something you're not or being someone you're not, then you're creating a foundation that will have those cracks in it. But there is a possibility to be more genuine from day one, to be yourself. You don't have to lie or hide things. And be aware that if you're hiding something, thinking that later on you're going to reveal it, or if you lie about something and think that later on it'll be okay, be aware of the huge damage that's going to have on the trust in the relationship. It's not about the content of your lie. If your age is three years younger or you're, this is, you know, you didn't have this degree or you don't have that job or whatever it is. It's more about the fact that now they're going to feel like they don't know if they can trust you. And that's going to be a much bigger blow to the relationship than whatever the other fact was. And again, if they wouldn't date you because of whatever that reason is, then hopefully you wouldn't want to be with that person either. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the previous segment, I was talking about dating and wanted to continue some thoughts on that and about getting to know someone. Um, I think I consider myself a romantic, so I think it's nice when people do romantic gestures for one another although i think the true basis of romance is not about some big gestures but lots of small moments where you show your partner you care about them you value them and so romance isn't always these um, things that can end up on instagram or facebook because it's a beautiful thing it's more about these small moments and so i think what unfortunately happens is because of and this is something i talked about I think it was last week or no, two weeks ago um, about how we're looking for a relationship that looks good on Instagram rather than one that actually feels good to us. But I think another related aspect of that is the ways that people think love is supposed to even look. And so I hear stories from people that say they met someone and they started to do some things together that were moving way too fast as far as, oh, they went on a trip together or you know, he asked me to go on this weekend vacation after they only met for a few days or they did this very extravagant thing together and they think that's what love is supposed to look like, these uh, fairy tale romance types of ideas. And we can get so caught up in that it can look so exciting and fun and we think how great it's going to be to tell our friends about what we did or what was going on that we don't really look at the substance of what's happening. If someone just meets you after a day or two and wants to go on a week-long trip, that should be a huge red flag to you. That they're, it might, might feel good. We think, wow, they want to go with me to this place uh, or to this trip or this experience. But you have to think, 
well, maybe you're you're probably great, I think. You know, I try to think of the goodness of everyone, but this person doesn't even know that yet. They don't know you. So if they're saying, I want to go with you, and you're feeling very good about that, you have to ask yourself, well, if this person doesn't know me and they want to go with me, what does that mean? And so we maybe try to fool ourselves that um, it's love at first sight or we somehow know each other more deeply or he saw something in me or she saw something in me that made them feel so good about me to take me on this trip. But more than likely, it's that they don't really care who you are. And it's just more about something superficial. They are probably physically attracted to you and they want to take someone with them on this trip. And so you're going to be that person. You're just filling a role. It's not about you going back to that idea of a commodity. You are just a hot commodity to them, um, pun intended. And so they want to go with you. But we have to be aware that the fairy tale romance idea that we think about in movies and um, in books and you know songs about what love is supposed to be like or these grand gestures, a lot of times it's coming from a very bad place. Because true love is not built in these quick moments or something super exciting. And of course, if you go on a weekend trip with someone after meeting them for two days and you fly on a private jet or whatever the extravagant vacation is, it's going to be exciting and enjoyable. So while you're going through it, you might feel really good. But that doesn't mean it's the building of something good and strong between you and that person or a strong relationship. And so... For some people, they take things too slow, but more what I see is the other problem, going too fast, and especially going too fast in the wrong ways, thinking that if there's something exciting happening, somehow that means the relationship is exciting, that the connection is exciting. It could be fun. You go to a concert together, you have experiences together, but we have to make sure we don't get caught up in the excitement of what is going on in the environment and mistake that for some kind of connection and sparks between you and that person that's not really what we're looking for or we should be looking for when it comes to creating a relationship and finding a partner so i I see this even more in places like los angeles where maybe there's even more of a focus on materialism and looking a certain way and we have more ideas of what a storybook romance is supposed to look like but that if someone gets offered a weekend trip on a private jet they think this is something really good But you have to be aware that if someone doesn't know you and is asking you to do something, it's because they don't know you that they're actually asking you, that they don't really care, not because they are so into you and they really have connected to you in some deep way. So we have to be aware of these issues that can come up when it comes to dating and to romance and love, that when you're building a relationship, it actually is built through strong or sorry, small, but yet strong steps that you take together and getting to know each other you show each other a little bit more of your character you see how they respond you connect in deeper ways but that's how it it goes you can't fall in love so quick and if you fall in love very very quickly you should be concerned or if you fall in love without really knowing each other rather than telling yourself this is something great and beautiful it probably means it's more about how desperate you are to find someone or that you just want to have someone, anyone, and almost you don't care who that one is, so you're falling so fast, or they're probably perfectly the wrong person for you. Unfortunately, when people tend to fall head over heels for someone very, very quickly, I mean within uh, days or a week, or even sometimes the night they meet someone and they think it's love at first sight, 
usually it's actually a very pathological type of love. Sorry to break the romantic um, vibe that people might be feeling, but it's actually usually not because you're so in love with them. They're actually usually triggering something in you from your past. They look so familiar to you. That's why I feel so familiar. And usually that familiarity is part of the negative aspects of your childhood that are being somehow played out by this person. Maybe they have that angry side of your mother or the controlling side of your father or they're an alcoholic or something that comes back from your own childhood that you are somehow feeling in them unconsciously. And that's why you're unconsciously drawn to them. And attraction is a very interesting thing because when we try to describe it, usually we don't really know. And we ask people and they have some ideas of the things they like about each other. But a lot of times what's also playing a big part is things that we are not aware of. And so we have to ask ourselves and try to become more aware of that. And something I always tell people to do is when you find yourself very attracted to someone, starting to get to know them and find yourself drawn to them very strongly, it can feel very good and exciting. And it's not that we should say that's all bad, but we do want to pump the brakes a little bit. And something we have to ask ourselves is, is there anything about this person that reminds me of the bad qualities of my parents and my childhood? Is there something there that is actually drawing me that is something bad? And we have to be very aware of this because we know that unconsciously we will be drawn towards those types of people. And it is very cliche to say you're going to be attracted to someone like your mom or your dad. But like lots of cliches, it's cliche because there's truth to it. We are drawn to that past that has not been uh, settled the unsettled and unresolved past issues that we have. And so we find someone new to play out that drama, to hopefully resolve it, or at least to be with someone familiar. A lot of times someone will feel like home to you, which on the surface sounds very good, until you start to think about what your home was like. And if your home had a lot of fighting, or if you had bad relationships with your parents, or if there was abuse, you realize home is not a good thing. To find someone that feels like your old home is not going to be good, even though you might be drawn towards that. So especially if your childhood was painful, we sometimes say it's as if your radar is off. Your radar, unfortunately, is going to be pointing you towards the direction of people that are bad for you. And so sometimes we have to realize that the good and healthy love might be a slower burn. It might not be this intense fire of passion. And so again, this is where movies and uh, songs and poems can mislead us because we think the true love is the one that's so exciting that makes us out of control. Or even people will say funny things like, unless you do crazy things for someone that it's not true love, like harmful things to yourself or to them or breaking things, that that's what love is supposed to look like. But no, that's just the pathological side. That's not the good side of things. That's the part of us that's triggering some really old wounds that are getting opened up by this new love and this new person. But that's not what love needs to look like. And so sometimes that slower burn is the better one. That's the flame that's going to last longer. The more intense one is going to burn brighter and hotter and sometimes too hot and is going to burn out and you're going to hurt yourself or hurt them or hurt both of you. But the real love is usually the one that's going to be formed more slowly. If it has to form so fast, sometimes that's telling us something is up. It's almost like you both know that if you take your time, you're not going to actually be with each other. And so you're trying to 
rush into things. And so sometimes we have to recognize that and take a step back. It's not that we have to doubt that we love this person or doubt that things have to somehow end badly, but that we want to just be aware that if this is a good relationship, it will be a good relationship even if we take our time. We don't have to rush into things. And there's no recipe for everyone that they have to do it this way or that it has to be bad if you go too quickly. But we have to be aware of the potential risks, just like you can uh, drive very fast and arrive safely. But once you go past a certain speed, of course, your risk of getting hurt is much higher. The same thing is true of relationships. Yes, there's people that have fallen in love quickly and got married and still are happily married. So you'll find those stories, but we have to be aware that the risk is always there and the risks are huge because here, if you fall in love and end up marrying the wrong type of person for you, it could be a miserable life. So I would always recommend taking a step back or at least becoming aware and mindful. I think falling in love, where I like how Eric Fromm talks about standing in love or uh, walking in love and that way it's active. That's actually another element of it. When people fall in love in the way I was talking about, it's as if it's out of their control and they tell themselves it's not something they have to think about or be aware of what's going on and just let it happen. But to me, you always have to love with your head and your heart. You, of course, have to feel things for that person and feel that connection, feel the goodness and feel that attraction. But you also have to also think about how things are going too. Of course, first, just logistical things. You know, you can say things like age is nothing but a number, but there are real constraints in life that you have to be aware of. And you can say that nothing should get in the way, but love is never enough. It takes more than just love. But also looking at, is this really the right partner for me? Thinking about what you're attracted to in them. Are there any red flags that you're choosing to ignore, which so often is the case? And be aware of how we might find ourselves that actually we weren't in love to begin with. We were actually thinking we're in love because either we were desperate to find someone or we were trying to resolve some old wounds and we found someone else to reopen them with, unfortunately, rather than heal those wounds. And that could be a big problem. So just some thoughts on dating, something that comes up a lot when people ask uh, what things I can talk about. You can always send me some messages if you want to recommend some comments but uh, or, or topics, but I'll end with the book of the week again. Uh, Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Talking to Strangers, what we should know about the people we don't know. I'll talk about that on Monday's show. Well, thank you to Amir here in the studio and everyone listening out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. Have a wonderful night.